We are going to be in Acts chapter 5. So if you would turn there or tap there, you're going to want to have this in front of you this morning because it's a bit of a longer narrative passage, a good story. We're going to read Acts chapter 5, verse 17. So I mentioned there are Bibles at the back. If you don't have a Bible, a good readable Bible of your own, please take one of those with you when you leave today. Acts 5, starting in verse 17, we're going to read through the end of chapter 5, this amazing story of God's intervention into these apostles' lives. Acts 5, 17, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of the people of Israel and sent them, sent to the prison to have them brought But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison doors securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple, and teaching the people. Then the captain and the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet you have been filling Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in high honor by all the people, stood up, gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And when he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all the people after him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice 
And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, for what we just read, for your intervention, for these apostles' faithfulness to you in the midst of persecution. Lord, would you please fill each one of us with your spirit this morning that we might hear your word? Or would you draw us deeper into this story and into your word today that we would know you better than we ever have? Would you move in our hearts? We pray for those in our church family who aren't able to be here this morning, who are working and laboring or who are ill. Father, we pray for healing. We pray for your presence with them. We pray for other needs that are coming to our minds and our community, in our families, in our neighborhoods. Lord, for your hand of mercy and provision. Thank you for such a great redemption in Jesus. We love you, God. We pray that you would continue to speak this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. What a story. As we continue in Acts, the kingdom of God continues to advance. The apostles continue to obey the commission that they had received from Jesus to make disciples of him among all nations, to proclaim the gospel. They were on mission. More and more people were coming to know Jesus, were coming to follow him, turn to him in faith, and experience the power of the Holy Spirit filling them both through the apostles and their teaching and the miracles that were being done, but then the people were also experiencing the Holy Spirit and their normal, ordinary lives as they went about living. They became a whole new kind of human being, living a whole new kind of life with new priorities and new possibilities opening up because of the Spirit filling them, empowering them. To be clear, no human beings had ever experienced anything like what they were experiencing that we read today. No one had. This, there is no parallel in human history to what we are reading about in Acts. This was an entirely new way to be a human being. These were disciples of Jesus in action. They were living out what he had taught them and the ways that they had been shaped as they followed him were being lived out. Every day they were denying themselves. They were taking up their cross. They were following Christ. Their life was calibrated to Jesus and to his kingdom all the time. And as we think about what we just read, Luke's account of this amazing story, we need to remember that none of them knew beforehand that this was going to happen this way. They wouldn't have even had a New Testament at this point in their hands. There was no script that they were following this was Holy Spirit improv. They were dependent on him, and as they faced opposition, Jesus had told them, these are my ways, and they are very different than the world's ways. 
and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. But Jesus had not told them in detail what would happen and how he would bring this all about. What would it look like exactly and what if they did face opposition? Could the way of Christ and his kingdom be stopped? As we walk through this passage today, I want to look at three different questions that are embedded in this text and that emerge out of it. The first one is, who is in charge? Who is in charge? The second one is, who will you obey? And the third one is, where did this life come from? Where is this from? The answer to each one of those questions was crucially important for these apostles and for the early followers of Jesus, and unbelievably important for us today, too. The answer to each one of those changes the way we live life and experience the ups and downs of life. The first question, who is in charge? In this passage, the kingdom of God and the life of the kingdom are coming into conflict with those who held religious power and authority among the Jewish people. This continued conflict was inevitable. It was going to happen. Jesus had warned his disciples that this would be the case, that they would face persecution. Look at John 16.33 on the screen. It says, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is Jesus speaking. He promised them, You will face tribulation. You will suffer. You will face injustice. You will be oppressed by those in authority. And Jesus didn't just teach them this. Jesus demonstrated this to them in his life, the way he lived. When the Son of God took on human flesh and lived a life that was overflowing with God's presence, God's ways, it threatened and challenged those whose life benefited from being in charge and from maintaining the status quo. And how did the authorities and powers respond to Christ when he did that? They were threatened by him. They sought to intervene and disrupt and undermine him again and again. Finally, they thought, maybe if we kill him on a Roman cross, that would put an end to him, his movement, and this kingdom that he is talking about. But we know that that attempt to contain Christ through the grave was a complete failure. His death was not the end. Instead, Jesus' death brought life. The very thing that was meant to stop Jesus and his movement was the very thing that propelled it forward. They tried to stop the Son of God by killing him and crucifying him on a Roman cross. But that was the thing that showed who was really in control and who was really in charge. Death and the grave could not hold him They could not overpower him and stop his conspiracy to overcome evil with good in every sphere of creation. And we see something very similar happening right now with these apostles in this passage. Luke says that the high priest and those who were with him were filled with jealousy. So they arrest the apostles and they put them in prison. And they made a point to do this in public. You notice it says public prison there. That's meant to, to key us to key in on the fact that this was done in full display. This wasn't a secret thing. This was very obvious. This was the authorities making a statement of force. We'll show the apostles who is in charge, us. 
And they wanted all the people to see that they had the power and control to put the apostles in the prison so that they, all the people, would know too, those guys are in charge. Just a quick aside about this jealousy that we read about in this passage. It's probable that the jealousy that these religious leaders were experiencing was a bit of mixed. So part of it was the ordinary human jealousy that we've all experienced, the ordinary sin of being jealous that someone else has an advantage over you, for example. Luke says, um, right before what we read in verse 14, he says, a multitudes of both men and women were believing and being added to the Lord. So as this movement grew, as the apostles' influence grew, the power and influence of the high priest, who was really upset, would diminish. So the apostles' influence was growing, their influence was diminishing, and they were jealous. So that's the basic jealousy, the dark side of uh, human envy. But at the same time, it's probable that they also had mixed in with that sort of jealousy a misguided zeal for God's ways. They believed that God had told them, the religious authorities, how the people of Israel ought to live. And Jesus and the apostles were a threat to that way as they understood it. So they believed that their role as leaders of Israel was to put an end to this, to stop this movement before all of Israel went out after it and went astray from God. So these religious authorities were human beings. They had jealousy, the normal kind, but they probably did have misguided religious zeal going on that was motivated, motivating what they were doing. And remember, this is now the second time that they arrested the apostles. The last time they arrested them, the religious, religious authorities chose to release them. They said they let them go. And since they are the ones that let them go last time, at least in their own minds, they were the ones that had control. They were the ones that had the upper hand. This time, though, before the religious authorities could release them, something unthinkable happened. An angel shows up, opens the door, and gets them out of prison. Just like the grave was found powerless, death could not hold Christ, locks on prison doors were powerless to stop the advance of the kingdom of God. Opposition to the advance of the kingdom is just God's opportunity to display his power and authority over all other competing authorities and powers. That's what's going on here. Through suffering and persecution and human beings' inability to prevent God from doing what God will do, God shows that he is in charge. And even when there isn't deliverance from prison, even when there isn't deliverance from death, it we'll read about later in Acts, God uses that persecution to show his mercy and his greatness and his power that no one can stop him from bringing about this redemption. The apostles' confidence that God was in charge enabled them to trust him in the midst of what appeared to be powerlessness, being under arrest. They knew that God was in charge. Sure, it looked like the religious authorities were holding them, but God could release them at any time. And he did. God was with the apostles. He had not left them. The very presence of God with them and involved with them is this constant theme that we see throughout the book of Acts. 
Jesus was no longer walking among them, right? After his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, he wasn't walking with them physically like he had, but he had promised that he would still remain among them by the Spirit. The apostles, just like us, had to learn what that would look like, though. Transitioning from following a physical man to being indwelled by an even deeper presence of God took practice, and it takes us practice as well to learn what that looks like. That same spirit is in us that has been in them as we're reading. They experience the tangible power of God's angel leading them out. Their role was to follow his lead as he did that. And it's like that for us too. We answer the question, who is in charge, every day. Every day we're answering, who is in charge. And this is especially true when we face suffering or injustice opposition or when things in our life just are not going how we want them to go we ask that question who is in charge and in those moments of challenge it's especially important for us to know god is in charge all the time bullies who are working tireless tirelessly to force their will on us they cannot win god is in charge illness which threatens to steal our joy will not win god is in charge Persecution for the name of Christ and those that are behind it are not in charge. We belong to God and He is in charge. We can trust Him every moment of our life. If God is for us, who can be against us? So I want to look at question number two now, the next question that emerges out of this story Who will we obey? Who will you obey? So Luke tells this story first from the perspective of the apostles, and then he tells it from the perspective of the high priest and the religious authorities as they discover what happened. I think it's fascinating. If you look at that sentence about the angel showing up, there is no elaboration on this at all. It is such a short description. He doesn't tell us how this happened, how the apostles reacted. You can kind of put yourself there and imagine this. I'm pretty sure our jaw will be dropping. We might be full of some fear when suddenly you're being let out of this prison. But evidently, however it happened, it was done silently and without the guards noticing because they don't realize that the apostles are gone until they go in to look for them, which is an embarrassing moment for these people who were in authorities. The angel then, after he breaks them out of jail, after the jailbreak, gave the apostles a really important charge. He says, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Go stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. There was not going to be any time to lay low. There wasn't going to be a time to retreat and go hide. The angel was directing them to go to the most central, busy, and important place for the Jewish people, the temple, and continue to proclaim this life. I love that description of the kingdom and the gospel, this life. This is actually the only time in our New Testament that it's called this life. It's almost as if at this point, remember there, there wasn't a term Christianity yet and no one was called Christians yet. So it's almost like there was a bit of a challenge to know how to describe this movement. Other places we'll see the movement is also called the way. But right here it's called the life. And I think that does a beautiful job of capturing that what they were doing was living and being 
not just thinking. This wasn't just a philosophical system they were following or a new moral code. It was a whole way of life. Of course, a life by itself is open to all kinds of interpretations. So they needed to share it. They needed to explain it and proclaim it. It's the same with us, right? We've talked about this throughout Acts. Our demonstration of the life of Christ requires explanation if other people are going to know Christ the way we do. So what did the apostles do? They obeyed. They taught. And of course, this landed them in front of the authorities again. They immediately, the authorities point out, you disobeyed us. We told you, do not teach in this name, and you are. Notice they don't talk at all about, we found the prison empty. They don't even go there. They want to address the behavior. You're doing what we told you not to do. They felt that they were losing control. Peter's response on behalf of the apostles, I want to put that up on the slide and reread it. It's perfect. It's so clear and it gives us a little sample of what the life was that they would have been proclaiming that was making these people so upset. It says, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This again is an act of defiance. This again is a demonstration of who is in charge. Proclaiming the very life, again, right in the face of the people who were threatening them. Their verbal response and their obedient action demonstrate a joyful allegiance. They are joyfully connected and their, their allegiance is to Christ above everything else. They believe that Christ was preeminent and they would obey him and follow him at any cost. You'd skip to the end then of the encounter at the end of the, the chapter here, verse 40. Look what happens. They were beaten and again charged not to speak in the name of Jesus. This beating, kind of like the earlier jailbreak, doesn't take up much room in the text, but that beating was not a small thing. It was most likely more like a flogging, like with a leather whip with maybe three strands on it, or like a lashing. We don't know how many times they received that, but it could have been up to 39 times according to their laws. Again, why did that happen? Because they obeyed God rather than man. They chose to continue to proclaim Christ, and so they're beaten. But look at how they respond in verse 41. They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer loss for the name. They rejoiced. They were filled with joy. They chose to obey God even though they knew that it was probably going to cost them, and they were full of joy. That was the fruit of their obedience. And this was exactly, again, what Jesus had prepared them for and taught them. Look at Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Again and again, the disciples of Jesus demonstrate with their lives Jesus' teachings to a T. Today's passage reads almost like a case study. How would you apply this in real life? We just read it. Everywhere they went and lived, they alerted people to the reign of God around them. Everywhere they went. They showed it wasn't the religious authorities who were in charge, but it was God. And the very thing that was meant to deter them from following Jesus, a beating, actually led to them to have a deeper obedience than they could have had. Because in the moment of being beaten, even then when they're rejoicing, they're obeying Christ. This is just like the cross again. In the moment of Jesus' apparent defeat is when he is winning. In the moment of the apostles being thrown in prison behind a locked door is the moment that the authority of God is shown. And in this moment, the moment of beating, painful beating, is the moment of a deeper obedience and joy in Christ than they would have had. That's what God does with opposition to his ways. He deepens our joy in Christ. He deepens our trust in him and provides new opportunities to obey him. My favorite definition of joy, you guys know I like definitions by now. My favorite definition is joy is a pervasive sense of well-being. Joy is a pervasive sense of well-being and it flows out of the confidence and trust that God is in charge. The apostles chose to obey God rather than men. They were beaten for it and they rejoiced having been filled with a pervasive sense of well-being in that moment. As we live and as we as a church follow Christ, we will be faced with the question over and over again, who will we obey? Who will we obey? Will we trust that obedience to God will lead to gladness, will lead to joy, all that our souls long for? Or will we be duped into thinking that God cannot be trusted? If I am going to get what I really need, I have to disobey him to get it. You know, that was the very first lie that was told from the very beginning. God is holding out on you. He knows that eating the fruit of that tree will make you like him, knowing good and evil. You need that. You're missing out. That's the way sin and evil work, trying to dupe us into thinking that by pursuing them, we will have life. Another way of asking the question of who will you obey is to say, do I trust that God knows and does what is good for me? Do I trust that God knows and that God does what is good for me? Because obedience and trust are always linked together. The apostles believed clearly by the way they lived that they were called to a cruciform life, a life that was shaped by the cross and directed by the cross where Jesus died. What that meant was that as they followed Christ, they would suffer like Christ. And they would suffer for Christ. They were called to a cruciform life. And we are called to that same life today. Overt persecution for the name of Christ is not our normal experience here. I have not even considered the possibility of being taken away by authorities after preaching Christ this morning and being lashed. That's not part of our reality. Of course, we do know that there are followers of Christ, right? Who that is their reality today, but it is not ours. But even though that isn't what we experience here, we still have opportunities to live 
the cruciform life that is formed by the cross. Suffering in some way for and like Christ as we obey Christ. For example, we do this whenever we choose not to repay a wrong done to us with another wrong. Every time we choose to not repay wrong with another wrong and instead choose to bless, we are living the cruciform life that Christ taught us. When we do that, when we choose not to bring more wrong out of the wrong, we're taking that evil and that sin upon us. And if you like, we're absorbing it in a way just like Christ did. Meaning it's ending with me. I'm not going to perpetuate that evil. I'm going to take it upon myself and I will bless in return. That is a cruciform life modeled after Christ and we can see the apostles doing it. Another example from from our life and for our context is service. Service to others. Service can be costly. It requires time and energy depending on what, what the thing is that we're doing. It can make our bodies sore. It's never convenient to serve someone else in need. I've never seen that be the case. It's always an interruption in our life. But in those moments when we're faced with that opportunity to serve and to obey Christ to serve, anything that requires suffering or sacrifice, which are both cruciform terms, suffering and sacrifice, we get to live that life a cruciform life, and lay our life down on behalf of others the way that Christ has laid his life down for us and our obedience. So who will we obey? By God's grace and by his spirit, him, God. Now for our last question, question number three. Where did this come from? Where did this all come from? When the authorities discovered that the apostles were missing, And doing the very thing that they had forbidden them from doing, proclaiming the gospel, they have them brought before them, right? Bring them before us for more questioning. The answer that Peter gave them enraged them to the point where they were ready to kill the apostles in that moment. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, Gamalehi, intervened. Remember, we're told at the beginning of this encounter that the high priest and the religious authorities were Sadducees. But he was not. He was a Pharisee. He was not one of them. He was held in honor and respect enough that even though he wasn't one of them, they listened. And we find out later in Acts that he was actually Paul's teacher. His wise advice in this moment is, do not kill them. If this thing is from human beings, it will fizzle out. It will go away on its own account. And he gave a couple examples of different movements of God of, uh, at the time that were like what Jesus was doing, that once they killed the leader, the whole thing fizzled out. And remember, they had already killed Jesus. They had already killed the leader of this kingdom movement. So if this was from man, from human beings, then this was going to fizzle out. But if it was from God, if this thing was going to continue no matter what they did, then killing these apostles was futile. And they would be found going against God's very word, the thing they actually didn't want to do. So where did this movement, this life come from? Where did this all start? 
Was it out of the minds of human beings? A well-intentioned effort at revolution and social change where the poor would be lifted up, where those who were oppressed would be freed, where people who had dealt with illness after illness would be healed? Was that what it was out of the mind of humans? Or was it God breaking in and entering into the world that he made to accomplish his purposes and redeem a people to set all things right, to forgive them and make them into new creations. Where did this come from is the question at this point in Acts. That is the question this whole passage hinges on, the answer to that question. Where did it come from? But if it's from God, not human beings, then no human being will be able to stop it. And here we are. 2,000 years later, and nothing has been able to stop it. Not for lack of trying. Because what we follow and who we follow truly are from the heavens. Yes, Jesus was killed like those other leaders. But unlike those other leaders, the grave was far too weak to contain him. The resurrection of Jesus showed once and for all that what God started in Jesus could not be stopped by any human means. If killing the leader couldn't stop it, nothing can. When the incarnate Son was crucified, evil did its absolute worst. All of the evil that evil could muster was poured out in that moment on the cross. Sin and death and decay all came together at the cross. And what happened? They were defeated and dealt with once and for all. The enemies of God will not win because this is from Him. This didn't come out of our minds. And recognizing and remembering that the way of Christ is heavenly and has a heavenly source will produce hope in our souls. Remembering where it's coming from produces hope, the joyful anticipation of good from God. Our redemption and our renewal, our salvation, is God's idea. It is God's work to accomplish. Our job is to come alongside what he is doing and join him in it, but it is never dependent upon us, this movement of his spirit and the advance of the kingdom. We can fully trust God because he is in charge. And we can joyfully obey because of that fact. And as we obey and remember that this is from him, he will fill us with hope. The reality of Christ and this life is so tangibly captured with communion that we're going to celebrate now. Communion is a word that nourishes our soul. It's this visible word, the same way that the written word does. We feed on the truth of Jesus' death on the cross for us as we experience the taste of the bread and the taste of the cup. We come to him as redeemed ones, purchased by him with his body and with his blood. In the Lord's Supper, we anticipate Christ's presence among us, both working in us and working all around us. And we anticipate his final return when he will set all things right. 
So if you've responded to Christ's love, God's love with faith in Christ this morning, we invite you to join us in this and celebrate Christ's death on our behalf. If you're visiting this morning, if you're observing and you're learning, we're super glad that you're here. We want to invite you to remain present with us and observe how we worship Jesus in this very Christian way. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have redeemed us in the moment of our greatest weakness, our brokenness and sinfulness, you redeemed us and cleansed us of all sin. God, I pray for each of us this morning that by your Spirit, you would remind our hearts how fully and thoroughly we have been purchased by you and made into your sons and daughters. God, thank you that we get to worship you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.